Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 179 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us wherever you're doing so. Uh, a big thank you to uh, uh, Joanna for coming on last week. We had a great chat about um, archaeology and uh, the Bronze Age and uh, the discovery of, um, you know, uh, she talked about obviously her specialist subjects, Bronze Age, but we talked about like the, the uh, Easter uh, rising in 1916 and the internment camps that she went to and found kind of different artifacts so it was fascinating a huge broad range and i obviously started talking about indiana jones and other stuff uh just on film uh so it was a lot of fun so thank you very much uh joanna also you can support us on buy me a coffee but our guest this week is um a professor of clinical psychology and an author his name is peter kinderman how are you doing peter i'm good thank you yeah um Thank you very much for joining us. Like I said already, uh, we always start in the same place. Peter, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Uh, yeah, no problem at all. So, slight, not terribly unusual, but but slightly odd. So, my my father earned money by being a painter and decorator. Mm-hmm. Work uh, maybe three days a week as a painter and decorator, and the other two days a week he was a, a strict Baptist minister. So, one of the things about growing up is he had a boxed set of Ian Paisley's sermons. wasn't so keen on the politics. He was very keen on Ian Paisley's uh, uh, religion. Mm. Um, quite a um, um, niche uh, religious perspective my, my parents had. So, uh, um, very little money. Um, uh, interesting, quite intellectual. So, we're very dif- difficult to classify in terms mm. of the English class system. So, almost no money. But he kind of had one of these professions that meant he could sign people's passports and stuff and no read um yeah so interesting guy um and uh then grew up in sussex um saw my uh my siblings uh rebel in various different ways against my parents and i thought best thing to do was to go to university best thing if you're going to go to university is um you look down the list choose the best university then go there so that's what i did i mean that's a fair enough approach, I would imagine. It's funny, the, the Ian Paisley thing, not as popular in this part of the world as maybe some oh, others. I, I, but... I, think, I think you're doing about a disservice. Having li- listened to, well, I've actually never listened to any of his sermons at all, but listened to my dad doing a rendition of his, his best Baptist minister thing. I think you're missing, I think you're missing something deeply important and culturally valuable. I think uh, uh, the, the thing that strikes me about uh, Ian Paisley, I suppose, as uh, a very, an excellent orator, you know, a, a, an excellent speaker. But when uh, it comes to uh, like the the south of Ireland, uh, obviously we straight away uh, split off in terms of uh, religion and the placement of, um, of Paisley, you know. So, yeah, right wing politics aside, my, mm-hmm. my, my dad's religious faith was quite interesting because... Very, 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 very Protestant, which meant mm. that even now, not particularly big into uh, in, into music, getting into it. My, my father did once say that Cliff Richard was the Antichrist. Okay. Um, and he was quite serious about it. Yeah. What he meant was that pop music is evil and Cliff Richard is bad because he's allowing pop music and Christianity to, to coexist. And that's, that's disastrous for Christianity. So he had some quite straightforward views, but he was very literal. Um, and so he got into terrible difficulty when there was contradictions within the Bible. And you know, mm. him and his mates would spend many, many hours trying to resolve those contradictions because, of course, they can't be because it's the literal word of God. And yet it's not in Aramaic. And he just got himself caught up in quite a lot of loops because mm. it was extremely literal. And, you know, I could I could see echoes of that. 
now I kind of look at people's published work and go, it's not a bloody metaphor. You're stating it as a fact. Come yeah. on, <laughs> let's have some evidence here. Yeah. So, I I think that's fair enough. And also, Peter, we we always ask, um, when uh, when did you first become aware of mental health? Um, well, always. So mm. I'm quite a lot younger than my oldest brother, who's struggled uh, throughout his life with uh, with problems that have affected his mental health. Um, so I, you know, I, I used to come back from walk back from primary school and find strange things happening at home and uh, parents and and family members. Uh, having meetings with mental health professionals so so that was always there and given that my brother struggled quite a bit there was always as I was growing up there's quite a lot of um, fear of what it meant for me as well as for for him so yeah always there always aware of it Um, sometimes quite challenging. Okay and did that have any influence then on what you decided to do then you know when you did go to university? Yeah, in lots of ways. So um, uh, I was quite big on science uh, and I used to to sort of, uh, my second choice, my, my first choice was to study science and my second choice was to, to study uh, a split degree between physics and philosophy because I was quite interested in things like determinism and free will and so forth. And I'm very interested in some of the emergent ideas coming out of how complex systems develop abstract reasoning and even AI and I'm, I'm interested in all of those things whether you can have a deterministic physics but then uh, the emergence of abstract rules and free will which some neuroscientists think you can have so I was very interested in that and I was interested in you know are, are, are our fates and therefore by definition is my fate determined I was interested in the biology of these things I was interested in the genetics uh, of these things um, so um, I think for a while my response to my brother's problems was um being quite scientific Mm -hmm. in it but interestingly the degree that I ended up studying uh was science but they bundled psychology in with that science and then I started to take the um the clinical psychology route after that um I read then afterwards when I was when I was looking you up um initially when I when I got your book that you took a, a great interest in delusions and hallucinations. What was what was the kind of draw to that? Um, it's sort of quite ordinary in some ways. So, so when I was at university, I started to become, I suppose, a little bit more confident in in exploring some of the more difficult to explain areas of psychology and interested in what was happening in my own family. So interested in in trying to understand psychosis, um, and uh, came across the work of Richard Bentel, who ended up being my my boss, my my PhD supervisor, and that was fascinating. It was a fascinating intellectual challenge because, um, being quite an arrogant person, I thought, well, here here you go. Here's an area where the biological psychiatrists say two entirely contradictory things, which is we have absolutely no idea what's going on in schizophrenia, but it's definitely a brain disease. Mm. you think okay well let's get to grips with that um and it i thought for me personally it'd be quite nice to to understand um and get a grip on psychosis what's going on when people have psychotic experiences uh, and what can help so yeah it was a it was a very interesting quite important personally and intellectually challenging area to work in yeah i would imagine so and when you started um 
the study and you, you went through university and so is it always in the back of your mind that you're going to write a book or, you know, is it always the idea to be, become an author? Not really. Okay. Um, I mean, I, 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 from quite early on, so, you know, not really as I was finishing my undergraduate degree, but as I was doing my first job. So my first job, uh, I don't know how much you know about clinical psychology, but you, you, before you train as a clinical psychologist, you do a year or two working as an assistant psychologist. And when I was doing that, I, I was at St. James's Hospital in Leeds and the psychologists there were quite closely associated with the university. So I saw this split between the NHS um, and university role and I thought that's exactly what I want to do. I'm quite an intellectual sort of chap. That's that's perfect for me. Um, and so I suppose by the age of about 21, 22, I thought, yeah, this, this not, not just academic work, I, I do get quite annoyed at some of my colleagues who call themselves psychologists and don't actually get their hands dirty mm-hmm. in, you know, inpatient wards and so forth. Um, that's not for me. So, so very much a split between the NHS and the academic work. And I guess then, you know, you start writing papers and you end up writing books just because it's kind of what you do. Um, I didn't kind of, I wasn't tramping around the streets of East Sussex with a with a floppy leather hat on thinking I am an author. No, I just yeah. got stuck into you do a study, you write it up. When you've got five papers, people start saying, do you want to bundle this together and make a book? And you think, yeah, well, I'll have a bash at it. And on it goes. Yeah, they, uh, uh, you described yourself there as, as kind of an arrogant chap, which is it. it's interesting because I, I when I read the book title, Okay, so the, I'll just read the full title for the people who might not know. So it's a manifesto for mental health, uh, why we need a revolution in mental health care. And I always tend to think a manifesto as this big kind of scary word that people write when they're really in control of something and think this is exactly how it's going to work. Now, that might read as a title, but when I read the book, my mind changed, obviously. So much was covered in the book. So I want to kind of go through some particular points that, that kind of struck me. Um, so... First of all, and I suppose this is the larger question, why do we why do you think we need a revolution in mental health care? Um yeah, I mean it's not just me. Um, mm. people have been saying it for years. So um one of the interesting things about psychiatry, if I can talk about psychiatry, is this split between people who have a very biologically deterministic view of uh uh, psychological well-being and those people have a much more psychological view and of course it's always a little bit of both it's always us as we come with our embodied selves meeting the world um, and just as a technical bit one of the ways to think about that is how much of the variance is explained so comparing you and I mm-hmm. how much is uh, our difference in worldview our difference in responses to stressful situations our difference in responses to the word Ian Paisley dictated by differences between us in terms of our biology the answer incidentally is almost nothing Mm -hmm. and how much of it is dictated by different experiences we have and yeah the obvious thing when I'm giving a lecture is I look at the audience and I go for instance the men in this audience especially the white men in this audience and the black women in this audience uh, what differentiates your trajectory through life in terms of your mental health is almost certainly not your genes it's almost Mm -hmm. certainly the structures of society that impinge upon us um so the idea has been going on for hundreds of years, literally, of this this idea between um, a biological explanation for why people get depressed, get anxious, hear strange voices and so forth, and, and the social explanation. Um, and so part of 
the need for a revolution is just for various reasons the the sort of scales have swung towards actually quite a an odd biological model now where somebody a, a former president of the American Psychiatric Association said it's no longer a biopsychosocial model we operate a bio 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 model <laughs> and so things have swung there we, what's interesting is the the edifice is built on total sand so mm. you know, we know these things are genetic diseases well what genes well we haven't found any yet but we're confident that next week we'll we'll find some these things are definitely the product of of abnormalities in your neurochemical system all right okay do you have any papers showing that abnormality and how that abnormality might lead to mental health problems well no but we're working on it if we get another 62 million pounds from the government i'm sure by next week we'll have some answers so there's no evidence for it but it profoundly influences diagnosis treatment and so forth and lots of people have pointed out how shamefully lacking in evidence this approach is it, it's a belief system mm-hmm. based on statements in books that are self-referent and websites that cite other websites that cite the opinion of somebody who thinks something because probably it's true and oh by the way um there, there's a disease that affects the liver that that seems to be quite biological and uh and that also attacks poor people more than rich people so therefore mm-hmm. obviously schizophrenia is the same that that kind of logic and we get really annoyed at it because we shouldn't base healthcare on stupidity and also really annoying because the consequences of that way of thinking mean hundreds of thousands millions of people get diagnosed with with things which just aren't illnesses and get told various things that are hugely damaging to their sense of self-worth and take drugs that poison them and lead to an early and miserable and disabled death i mean the whole thing is terrible and we shouldn't do it this way and you know within reach is uh, an approach which I think is all already demonstrably much better. Um, and I'm not the only person, you know, mm-hmm. um, Denias Puras was um, United Nations rapporteur for the rights of everyone to access to healthcare. And he says the current system is broken and we need a revolution. And, yeah, and effectively that's close to the official United Nations position on these things. So I don't think it's just me. I think I'm, you know, reading the stuff that other writers have suggested, but the bottom line is, Hundreds of thousands of people, including people that I care about, right now in the UK are being told things that have no evidential basis and are being given treatment plans that are doing them no good and almost certainly doing them a lot of harm. I think it's a scandal. Um, when when someone or like when people hear that, you know, someone like yourself who's studied this stuff um, and written about it. Uh, but people who have diagnosis have sorry have been diagnosed with something you know um I went through a, a lot about thirteen fourteen years ago where I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety, and you know I trusted the doctor you know and I trust the 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 you know professional uh, people around me and who were telling me this is this is what it is and you know I was put on medication and people ask me about medication now I think. Medication is kind of a sticky one because some people say like, oh, you shouldn't take medication and other people will say, well, you know, if it's helping, it's okay. I, I, when I thought about it, I wanted to take my own life when I wasn't on it. And then when I was put on it, I didn't want to take my own life. And what are your thoughts on, on, I suppose on medication in general, but the idea, how do we change people's minds? If we're told by professionals, this is what you have, or this is how you are. How do we change people's minds that, you know, there's more to it than that? 
Okay, so so I think there's there's two things there, and I don't mm-hmm. want to kind of dictate your approach to questioning, but I think the diagnosis issue and the medication issue are possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're obviously related, but they're, they're worth taking in turn. And because of the way that my brain works, which is, of course, entirely due to my genes, it's nothing at all to do with anything else. Uh, I might forget the second question, so bring me back to the medication issue. Yeah. Diagnosis, look. So one of the things that happens when we talk about the issue of diagnosis in mental health is that I think people who have found it helpful to move from a position of chaos and worry to a position of understanding themselves a little bit better through the process of diagnosis think that folk like me are saying that their problems don't exist. That's not what I think. I think the problems are very real and serious and demand attention. And that's what I've devoted both my clinical and my academic work to. So if it sounds as if I'm saying the problems don't exist, Mm -hmm. I'm getting the message wrong. The problems are absolutely real, but thinking about them as illnesses is not the only way that we can do it. I mean, Imagine, for instance, if we thought of poverty, sexism or racism as illnesses to be Mm. diagnosed and then treated with medication. It's ludicrous and would be harmful and we wouldn't get to the heart of the problem. But we don't say that those problems don't exist. Anyway, um, so we're not saying that they don't exist. And I I think that we're not saying that diagnosis is is useless to people. I think it conveys enormous benefits to people. So it's very difficult to get services in the system that we have at the moment, if you don't not necessarily get a diagnosis, but go down that route, it's becoming worse. Incidentally, it's quite difficult to get various benefits these days without a diagnosis, uh, which incidentally isn't true in the rest of healthcare. But just, so if I go to my GP and want a, a, a well man clinic and ask for a cholesterol test and ask him to do a prostate test and uh, say that I've got some, some ill-defined pains in my ribs and can I have a scan, he'll order all of those things for me. And he won't make a diagnosis because he'll go, no, Peter, seriously, we do the tests first and, and then we do the diagnosis, apart from in mental health. Right? Uh, anyway, that's another aside. So when people are feeling like their life is in chaos, that they're having these overwhelming feelings that they don't understand, they're not entirely sure, they might have an idea of why what's happened in their lives in order to trigger them, but they don't know quite why it's so... Anyway, all of that stuff. Then the diagnoses do lead people out of a position of chaos into something else. And I think that's good. But two things. First of all, they come with a whole load of other baggage. If they didn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Mm -hmm. So when people say, look, doctor, I really don't know what's going on. I'm fine. I'm tired all the time. And I, you know, worry whether it's some sort of metabolic disease and I can't sleep properly. And I'm having lots and lots of negative thoughts and I feel low all the time. And the doctor goes, you are depressed. I think, hallelujah. There's a professional who's recognized what's happening. And you know what? Our experience of psychology over the decades has told us that those problems do tend to cluster together there's a very real phenomenon called depression and then they go a step further you've got a disease called major depressive disorder Mm -hmm. and they stick on disorder at the end because for some reason recognizing that somebody is hugely distressed and that it bundles together in a sensible way and there's probably reasons for it and we can do something to help isn't quite enough yeah you have to tell the person that it's because it's an illness. And that's the bit that I object to. So, for instance, there's a big um, 
a lot of people talk about post-traumatic stress. I've heard members of the royal family who served in, in the armed forces getting quite angry about adding the word disorder to post-traumatic stress. You do something that is traumatic, and as a result, as a consequence, you're left hypervigilant with flashbacks, with survivor guilt, with uh, moral conundrums left by the actions you took and didn't take and then they tell you that that's a disorder mm-hmm. is it. it's post-traumatic stress adding the word disorder so if the process of diagnosis clarified your experiences told you that the doctor that you're talking to understands what you've been through recognizes the patterns recognizes the patterns not only in terms of human connection but also recognizes those patterns are ones which have been described quite well in the literature that we know quite a lot about how that phenomenon works and what to do about it. Brilliant. But that would be identifying a phenomenon called depression. Similarly, you hear voices, I want you to do something about it. If you have intrusive thoughts that cause you distress, for which you perform certain compulsive rituals that make you very distressed, but put an end to the anxiety, and you've got yourself caught up in a feedback loop there, then those obsessions and compulsions need to be recognised and we should do something to help you. But it's not a disorder. It's not an illness. It doesn't work that way. And there's not things wrong with your brain causing them. So it hinges a lot on the word if. The other thing is that um, I think that it by doing that, it introduces something unnecessary. So if you say, you know, I went to see someone and I presented them with all of this complex story and they told me that in their opinion... Here's how anxiety works, and I'm very anxious. Here's how depression works, and I'm very depressed. And here's what happens with source monitoring and why people have hallucinatory experiences, and I understand that too. And they talked about sleep, and they talked about diet, and they talked about stimulant drugs, and they talked about the interface with... And you come away and you go, I really understand what's happening. You're brilliant. But that's not diagnosis. Mm. Diagnosis doesn't do that. Diagnosis says the reason why you're depressed is because you've got depression. And... It, so I think it's it's intellectually vacuous, but it conveys a, a, a very poor and inadequate understanding of these phenomena mm-hmm. because the phenomena are not detailed. They're wrapped up in these silly three-word diagnoses. And it conveys a whole load of baggage. Like the reason why you are depressed is because there is something wrong with you. Either there's something wrong with you per se, the chemical imbalance is making you depressed, or there's something wrong with you in the sense that other people would have been resilient enough to go through the experiences you've gone through without becoming depressed. And the reason why you have become depressed is because you've got a disorder called depression. Mm -hmm. So there are powerful messages coming at you from the diagnosis. And just recognising these phenomena as phenomena, I think, is probably the the clarity that we need in order to make plans in our lives. So, So the diagnosis thing is, I'm not chucking it all out. I'm not saying the problems don't exist. I'm not saying the problems aren't real. I'm not saying the problems don't cause difficulties in people's lives. I'm not saying that the problems are uh, uh, things that you shouldn't respond to. All of that's true. I'm actually saying that if we recognise these psychological phenomena as phenomena and engage with them, we'd get the benefits of a medicalized, pathologizing diagnosis without all of the unevidence-based and damaging crap that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And then that leads on to the medication, yeah. which is, you know, that's what you do is the, the sequence is I'm unhappy. 
you've got a disease called depression. What do we do with diseases? We supply medication for them. And that's the way that it goes. Um, some people say that medication is, is helpful. I think that's true. One of the rather interesting things about medication is that it, it does seem to be the case that because we do have genetic differences between us, genetic differences in terms of, for instance, how our serotonin system works, it's highly likely that the genetic differences between us aren't related at all to the origins of problems like depression or anxiety, but they're very closely related to how we respond to the drugs that they give us. And they never bloody test us for, for genetic susceptibility to the effectiveness of the drugs. No, nobody ever says, well, well, the thing is, Derek, you're depressed, so we'll just do a quick blood test and find out which SSRI would work best for you. Never, ever happens. Could happen, doesn't happen. But so so we respond, people respond differently to the drugs. And maybe some people, you know, maybe it's true that the medication... Um, not only works better for some people, but you know that there are identifiable patterns. I think one of the problems is that you know it's often said you compare people taking antidepressants with people not taking antidepressants, all of whom are depressed, and maybe something like fifteen percent of the people taking antidepressants improve as a result of the antidepressant use that wouldn't improve had they not taken the antidepressants, and that that fifteen percent represents that the medication is doing something genuinely efficacious for a small proportion of the group. I think that's possible, but we don't know. I think it's also possible that what's happening is um, quite profound placebo effects, that you know, the medication definitely changes your serotonin system. And if there's a change in your serotonin system, maybe that's enough to help you spring out of the, the the low mood that you're experiencing. And the SSRIs definitely fiddle with your serotonin system. The evidence that I've seen is that um, SSRIs maybe have a small short-term effect for a number of people. Whether you think that the risks of taking the medication, uh, even in the short term, are worth it, with the potential of you being in the 15% of people who get a benefit from the medication, I think that's a personal choice. Um, I am a bit concerned, however, that as well as the adverse effects of the medication themselves, um, we're finding that nearly all of the classes of medication that psychiatry has ever used tend to have short-term benefits in one way or another and massive long-term costs and costs for people attempting to withdraw from them. The outcome data that people use for drawing up clinical guidelines tend to be the outcome data that the pharmaceutical companies report. They tend okay. to be um, extremely good at spotting the positive effects of their drugs. And surprisingly, the adverse effects, well, next time we'll get around to it. I'm sure next time that somebody else will look at the adverse effects. Um, when, when guidelines, clinical guidelines are developed, um, it's very difficult to factor in the harms of the drugs. What you see are papers that tell you the clinical benefits. You do not see the papers that tell you the harms. And the small, possibly marginal benefit of most of the psychiatric medication, in my opinion, is based on quite selective studies that look only at the potential benefits and only in the short term. So I'm, I'm pretty sceptical of them. Um, 
I also think that we bundle together medication in all sorts of different ways. So, so stimulant drugs that are given to people who um, express problems with attention and memory and uh, uh, focus concentration and so forth are different from sedative drugs that are given to people who are experiencing psychosis. And again, personally, um, I would probably uh, think very, very, very hard before taking any medication for low mood and related problems. If I had a psychotic experience, I probably would take antipsychotic medication in the very short term. Um, but I wouldn't sign up to taking antipsychotic medication long term because I don't think the evidence for it is is positive. So I think, you know, I'm you know, we I, I'm very much in favour of the Joanna Moncrief approach to to medication. Um, let's see what the drugs do rather than assume that there's a disease there that needs to be treated with this medication. Um, people, I've, I've got coffee here. It, it's a powerful stimulant. I don't drink coffee afternoon because then I won't sleep. Um, and actually, I'm addicted to coffee. So if I don't have a coffee in the morning, I get a headache. Uh, and the same is true for other drugs, wine, I say wine, alcohol. Um, we, we know that drugs affect our mood. That's that's hardly surprising. Uh, I don't think caffeine is curing a, a, um, a tension and um, focus problem. It's just a drug, right? It's not curing an illness. And uh, so if if prescribed medication is helpful to people fair enough i'd be skeptical because the emerging evidence tends to suggest that there are quite a lot of adverse effects that the drugs companies would rather keep from the uh, minds of purchasers um if it helps it helps i understand yeah and i i think you know i've been uh down that route slightly of you know being put on a uh an antidepressant and it not working and then mm. you know a little bit down the line switch to something else and maybe thinking oh maybe this will be the one and it not working and then eventually finding one but it, it's just I never thought of it in the sense that you speak of where we're not tested for those certain drugs and I just you know it just didn't cross my mind because I told I think we're told like you know listen to the doctors they know what, what we're doing you know if we're not looking into it I, I mean from my point of view obviously we're not looking into it and we just say are told by professionals this is a, this is the way we do it and this will help and, and placebo is another thing that you mentioned which is a possibility as well and it's just it's just such a, a kind of a murky place that um Obviously, you've looked, at, you know, delved into it a lot and, and seen a lot of different stuff that, that maybe I have and some of the listeners have. And it's just it's interesting in that sense. Um, I, well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, and I, mean, I, I think this idea of trust me, I'm a doctor is kind yeah. of quite worrying, really. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I think that there's all sorts of subtleties to this. So, so, for instance, I am, as it happens, not um keen on the anti-vax movement mm -hmm. so when i look at the evidence for vaccinations they it, the evidence for vaccinations strikes me as um pretty positive really mm -hmm. pretty pretty convincing I, I i i feel reasonably confident that um yeah, I mean, you know, there are always people out there trying to make a buck and doing this, that and the other. But I feel reasonably confident that what's going on when it comes to vaccinations, you know, the scientific medical story makes makes sense. I think that one of the things that's happened in psychiatry is that people are taking that success 
in other areas of medicine, translating it across to psychiatry and saying, look at all the successes over there. Therefore, it must be successful here. And uh, I think that is, um, I think that is um, unwise, I suppose. Um, so, so I think we need to be, be cautious about these things and we need to have a quite a sceptical approach to, to these issues. I think we need to um, also think about whether we're being sceptical about everything and doubting everything or whether what we're doing is weighing up the evidence for each particular issue that, that, that we're looking at. For um, another thing that you talked about was uh, care facilities and how you feel that they're, you know, they could be better. They're maybe doing the wrong thing or looking at it the wrong from the wrong point of view. Could you talk about that a bit? Well, there's lots of things about that. So we've 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 got cultural ideas in most parts of the world that that people who, um, especially people who experience psychosis or people who harm themselves, people who think about taking their own lives, there's something inherently dangerous about people who start thinking uh, in in that way. So for hundreds of years, people I think have been scared of mad people, um, and that changes the way in which we we offer uh, help to people. Um, I think that the intensity of the emotions involved often frighten people. So our, our care system in mental health has been coercive yeah, for hundreds of years. Um, I think that there's also an element whereby, in my opinion, that fear and coercion is fueled by the idea that there's something different and intrinsically broken, flawed in the individual. There's something wrong with his brain. And we know that people with broken brains are, are dangerous. So all of that is, is going on. I also think it's blatantly rubbish. I mean, even if you strip out the, the coercion and the fear and the, and the negativity and the risk aversion, yeah, the idea that if somebody is miserable, is feeling like their life is pointless and they may as well take their life, that being shut in the back ward of the psychiatric hospital in Northern Europe is a really good place to inspire them with joy and hope and a sense of positivity for the future. Just come on. I mean, you know, a bit of common sense tells you it's not the way to do it. There's also discrimination. So one of the things I said in in, in my book is, you know, in my opinion, we should be building, um, you know, inpatient residential units for people with mental health problems like four-star hotels. And pretty much everybody goes, oh, I don't think the little bastards deserve that. So, so one of the things that's quite interesting, my, my mother um, died of uh, of cancer. So I you know, went to visit her in various hospitals and then hospices as she approached her death. Um, really nice, very caring staff, lots of attention, lots of machines that go ping, really clean, you know, private room, all of this sort of stuff. And then I'd you know, go visit my mother. And then in the afternoon, I'd go to some psychiatric hospital to do my work. And the, the contrast was shocking. Mm-hmm. So we just don't invest. You know, mad people aren't worth investing in. You, you should pull, pull your socks up and get back to work, you lazy bastard, seems to be the message. And if you can't, then we'll just medicate you into oblivion and lock you in a, in a dormitory. So first of all, I think these you know, residential units should be um, good, well-staffed, well you know, valuable places, um, four-star hotels. Um, and I think we can think about what a sanctuary would be like um, what a place of um, sort of calm and positivity would be like, what a place of initiative and purpose would be like. So as well as calm, relaxed spa music with with flittering butterflies and 
it's also you want to get on and do things you want to mm-hmm. you know have a bit of purpose to your life so we can imagine what it would be like and we don't build our units like that at all and it part of it comes from first principles if you're treating people who have a biological illness if depression is just like having a broken leg then a, a, a psychiatric asylum should look just like a and e and they do but if you think about it differently and you think if you have a man who's lost faith in humanity and lost hope for the future, how would we construct a service that would give him back a sense of positivity and optimism? You'd build it very, very differently. Yeah. And I think then you'd get into other things as well. So like I say, you know, what is it? How could we use our understanding of the psychology of mental health to give people a sense of, uh, of self-worth, give people a sense of meaning and purpose, what activities therapeutic in terms of talking but also therapeutic in terms of doing could we do and i don't know if you know that i'm uh i'm a trustee of a, a charity that's building a residential unit just outside dublin oh with irish colleagues um we we have found the wherewithal to buy a farm just outside dublin and we're going to uh we're going to use it as a a therapeutic space uh for people with mental health problems so kiri farm uh in kildare um just outside uh just outside Nace, and yeah, we're gonna. We're, it's not my money, but we're gonna put. <laughs> we're gonna put donors' money where our where our hearts are. So that's what we're. Yeah, do. but that you know that's brilliant. I did not know that. That's that's um that's really great news. I for one. I uh, was struck in particular when you did talk about the facilities. Um, I went to see a friend years and years ago now in uh, uh, not too far from where I am. And uh, it was like going into, a, you know, just I'm talking about the place now. Right? You know, it was scary. It was scary and a depressing, dark. And I was thinking to myself, how is my friend supposed to get well in here? It was just so yeah. oh, it, was, yeah. it was horrible. And it it left the mark, you know, I'm when I was feeling unwell and the doctor suggested that I go to this place, I was just no, no chance. Well, I think, I mean, and that's, and that's the thing. So, so one, one, uh, I think that, I mean, there are lots of good things about the way that care is provided to people in our services at the moment. You know, not everybody is um, abusive or uncaring. But I think there is something interesting of the difference between this person is ill and needs the best quality treatment for his illness that we can muster, which is, you know, in some ways an admirable aim. But I think that's a very, very different concept from this person has lost hope in their own future. What could we do in order to give that person a sense of hope? And they're really different questions coming from different ethoses, which lead to different services. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, my my view is that that's exactly what we need to do. What we need to do is to predicate our services on the second sort of questions, the non-pathologizing questions, and uh, and have less reliance on the former sort of questions the medicalized biological deficit sort of questions and then we get a different sort of service yeah um <laughs> i wanted to ask how much faith do you have in the dsm5 um uh, well so i could i could be very scathing in the sense that it's a it's a big book that would serve quite usefully as a doorstop um 
but I think it's I think it's worse than that. I think DSM five, um, for the sake of profiting pharmaceutical companies and members of professional guilds, in, including psychologists, um, it's condemned millions of people to unnecessary medication mm-hmm. and, in a sense, to hate themselves, uh, to see themselves as as damaged and flawed in some way. I think it's an absolutely pernicious and evil approach. Um, I think it does have some merits in it but it it, it's kind of like have you ever had that experience of of watching like a three-year-old doing an easter egg hunt yeah so they trot out into the garden and they've got a basket and they've got a basket full of chocolate eggs and they see a chocolate egg and they run towards it and they pick up the chocolate egg and they put it in the basket and as they put it in the basket two fall out yeah and then you go ha 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 and then it's kind of cute and it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. Well, imagine that with the DSM-5, but where it really matters and people die as a result. And what they're doing is they're going, this is really interesting. They go, like, one of the things that we've seen is that there, there are kind of loads of people out there who have, for all sorts of reasons, because we're mortal and we're going to die, because religion doesn't give us quite as much of a reassurance about the future afterlife as we thought it was, and because the priests are corrupt and abusive, and therefore I don't really have much to believe in, and so life is starting to feel really, really uncertain. I'm starting to get some intrusive thoughts that are really quite disturbing, but I can kind of keep them in check if I do certain things. And then the authors of DSM see the link between intrusive thoughts, obsessions and compulsions, and they see the distress and they see the ruin that it makes to people's lives. And you think the kid has just got hold of the little chocolate egg and there's the basket. And they're about to go, bloody hell, we're realising how the human mind works. We're just about ready to offer some hope and compassion to our fellow human beings. And then they drop the thing on the floor and you realize that instead of understanding that when shit happens to you and there's nobody good in your life to support you you get depressed and they go no 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 we'll throw that on the floor and we'll call it an illness yeah okay well what about the fact that people who've experienced traumatic events in childhood are three times more likely than the average person to experience psychotic experiences in in adult life and they go yeah that's really interesting so so Unusual beliefs where you don't share the beliefs of other people. You get these areas where you get some quite troubling thoughts that crop up and you can't shake them. And other people get quite distressed because they don't appear to be true. And the truth value of your beliefs, not religion, of course, we ignore religion, but truth value of other beliefs become really important. And it's become a real issue. And it's, of course, and you think, yes, we're going to start to understand how people make sense of the world and how our belief systems are intimately connected to how we see ourselves and others and that we need to believe certain things. And why do we need to believe those things? What's the function served by, oh, no, you've forgotten it all, and you're saying that it's a genetic disease and you've got to give people antipsychotics. And you just think it's quite close to understanding, and then it goes away. So the DSM has got lots of lovely things in it. It's got anxiety, it's got panic attacks, it's got, um, they're not lovely, right? That's the wrong word, but it's, you know, some intelligent people have spent quite a lot of time identifying some of those areas where where we're we're frail human beings, and then they've packaged it together wrongly, stuck it upside down, and then sent the parcel to the wrong place. 
I think that's a great answer to be honest. <laughs> so have you seen, since you since the book was published, have you seen any significant changes at all? Oh, I think no changes. I don't think the changes are due to me. I think my, my, my hmm. career will end in failure like everybody's career. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die unhappy and, and miserable. And, you know, I, I won't get the Nobel Prize and I won't get knighted and I won't be invited to have dinner with Barack Obama and, and my life my academic career will end in failure. But I think there are changes. Uh, there are changes. I think it's a sawtooth and people say things and then and then backtrack on them and you, you mm-hmm. think you're going to get something good and then it gets destroyed. Um, I think that the, the, the current interest in psychedelic medic- medication is kind of interesting, but I suspect it's going to get co-opted back into Big Pharma and people are going to be queuing sullenly round the block for, for their daily dose of ketamine or whatever. And the promise of understanding the human brain a little better is going to be beaten back into submission by the profiteers and drugs company and their lackeys in the psychiatric industry. So I'm not going to say, but I think there are changes. I I think that what's happening is that um, uh, I think I'm a bit of a Marxist. And so I think there's an irresistible uh, process of revolution. And I think that I and my colleagues are just trying to help the revolution happen a bit more swiftly so I think as people are starting to be more comfortable talking about their mental health, we're seeing lots of young people going, I am very anxious. Yeah. The fact that we are destroying the climate is frightening. I experience anxiety. And they're quite happy to talk about anxiety. They're happy to talk about being depressed. They go to school and they find that interacting with other people is a challenge and they say it out loud. And I think what we're doing now, which we didn't do even in the 50s and 60s, is we're responding to people with a bit more humanity and compassion. The medicalized model for that is still banging away there. So you get kids saying, um, industrialized teaching methods designed to turn me into a wage slave of Elon Musk is not to my liking. I am finding it difficult. And they go, yeah, take the Ritalin. Yeah. At the moment, people are going, OK, I'll take the Ritalin. Will I become a good little wage slave if I take the Ritalin? And they go, yes, because you'll get up at exactly the wrong time of day and you'll go to exactly the wrong school with people that you don't like and teachers that don't value you. And you'll be asked to do tasks that you don't find particularly engaging, but at least you'll have the Ritalin in you. So that'll be good. But people are talking about it. And I think it's irresistible. I think people will reject this. I think we'll see the evidence coming through and it will be irresistible. We don't use benzodiazepines so much anymore. People have started to realise that the idea that every American housewife should be taking Valium in order to make him a more quiescent partner for her domineering husband, we've ditched that. I think we're going to start to see the downsides of all of the other medication as well. And people are going to go, hang on a minute. I'd really quite like to tell people that I'm anxious. I'd really quite like you to hear me. I'd quite like you as a professional to take action to help me with that anxiety. But no, I don't want that solution because I don't think there's anything wrong with me. It's not an illness. It's because the world is a frightening place. Could I please have some help with this frightening place that I found myself in? So I think that the recognition of our mental health is growing, and that's good. The discussion of it in public is growing, and that's good. The refusal to be stigmatized by it is good. And over time, people will say, hang on a minute, I have some choices here. I don't have to accept your nonsense. I think the democratization of science is quite good. You can you can look anything up on Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. If somebody claims that everybody knows that schizophrenia is a brain disease, you know, 
a lot of people can look up the evidence for that themselves. Yeah. Now, admittedly, quite a lot of it's filtered, but, you know, we've got places like Mad in the UK, Mad in Ireland, Mad in America. These websites are talking about it. You can follow the links on social media and find that the United Nations has said we need a revolution. We need to move away from the idea of chemical imbalance to the idea of power imbalance. We need to move away from medical. And you start to think, well, if I can look that up, maybe we've we've had a little bit of guide. So I think it will take time for... Uh, framework of understanding to change yeah and i think it's moving forward i i would rather develop a mental health problem in the uk now than pretty much anywhere else in the world at any other time okay but it's just not good enough yet yeah i understand um peter you describe yourself as a socialist you think under like a socialist uh you know I was going to say a socialist utopia, but that might be a bit bit of a stretch. But do you think it would change how we look at mental health? Do you think we would look differently at things if we were under a, a socialist government? Well, you see, I'm a little bit... Logically, we should, and I'll tell you why we should, and then I'll, I'll also explain why we don't. So I, I, I've been a member of the UK-British Labour Party um, all my life, so I, I joined as a young socialist, and then I had a brief flirtation with with not being a member just after the, um, the the Gulf War, but I returned to spiritual home. So for me, there's a, a strong interplay between the way that I look at, at, at mental health issues and the way that I look at social issues. So I, I know quite, for all sorts of weird reasons in my life, I know quite a lot of very, very rich people, and some of them are lovely, and say, you know what? It's just pure chance. Mm. So some of them go, my dad was extremely wealthy so i'm extremely wealthy and you go yeah and they go it's just chance you know two people had sex i got born i'm i'm a millionaire you know good other people go it's really weird because like you know loads and loads of people set up um companies to do for instance nursing homes and then they go i just got out of the business at the right time Mm. lots of people now are not making money we sold up and we made a mint and other people go, well, it's interesting because I, I happen to buy shares in so-and-so and so-and-so and they've gone up enormously in value. And other people go, no, see, the thing is, thing is, Derek, see, what you want to do is you want to be smart. So, uh, and what they do is they tell a story where from their point of view, they're the big I am and they've mm-hmm. made the decision. I don't see it that way. I think our trajectory in life is not shaped a great deal by our character and our intelligence. I mean, if it were... I will give you a list of people whom, if that were true, then you would think that's a little bit perplexing. I mean, they are they are clearly extant, living, breathing examples for why that's not true, which is David Cameron, Boris Johnson, Liz Lettuce Head Truss. I mean, these, I mean, it's quite depressing, right? Because I, I, I sit and I look out of the world and I think, Peter Kinderman, I think, I think I've got a decent brain. I think I'm quite morally, I think I'm quite successful in this world. I haven't really achieved prime ministerial status, and yet Liz Truss has been prime minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and North. I'm not as competent as Liz. It's pure chance, right? It's just not, it's not our character. So for me, I look at why people are living in poverty. I look at why people are struggling to pay their rent. I look at people who are homeless. I look at people who've gone to jail. I look at people who've um, 
failed in some way. I look at people who have succeeded in some way. I look at the nice middle class area of Manchester where I live and I look at the lovely lives that people have and the privileged existence they have. And I think it's mainly the circumstances in which we grow up in and the way that we... It's just that's how it works. So for me, the socialism of we should not think... So I once once sat next to um, Esther McVeigh, former cabinet minister at dinner, and says, you do, what do you do for a living? I said, what I did for a living. It was an awards show, people were getting prizes and sat next to her at this, this dinner. And I was quite pleased to be sat next to her. And uh, so we started talking and she asked me what I did and I said I was a psychologist and blah, blah. And then she told me that the reason why poor people are poor is because they willfully choose not to avail themselves of the opportunities that are there in life. Okay, I didn't slap her. I'm pleased that I didn't, but I feel guilty, thought with her. Uh, so my socialism is, you know, our trajectory in life is li- largely shaped by the things that happen to us and what that means to us and so forth. And that's true for mental health. So I think that, you know, it's a social deterministic view of the world. Mm-hmm. We are the product in both our behaviours, our successes, our failures and our emotions of where we are in life. And it's not your character, it's not your genes, and it's not your illness, it's, it's life. One of uh- the... S- quite worrying things one of the irritating things is when um when she was um mp for, for one of the suburbs of liverpool i was quite close to luciana berger and she was shadow minister for mental health at the time and working under jeremy corbyn and both jeremy corbyn and luciana berger quite liked the message i was giving because i think they got the idea that the links between economic political socialism and the, the message I was giving you mental health. But Luciana's words to me, she goes, I get it, Peter, but you simply won't win with the Labour Party because mm-hmm. their message is back the NHS. So basically the, the message there is give twice as much money to Big Pharma and they'll, make, they'll give people twice as high doses of the drugs. And, you, you know, the hospitals that were a bit shit will build twice as many of them. And so, so I think that the problem is that the socialist uh, approach should be a social determinist approach that leads to different sorts of services but in the uk we're very proud of of the national health service so the labor party approach has just been build more psychiatric hospitals you know twice as many locks on the door twice as much acuphase twice as much shouting at patients twice as so so it, they haven't quite got it so i'm i i think we still need to argue that the um social determinist perspective on mental health and the idea of different forms of services funded through general taxation as part of the social uh, obligation of the state is the way to go and move them gently away from mental health being a, a, an NHS obligation of the state towards being a social obligation of the state. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that's a really good answer. And Liz Lettuce Head Trust is a new one on me. Well, I know her. I didn't, I've never heard her described as a lettuce head, but I well, like it. He was made by minister and I think it was the son. So they put a lettuce with, with a webcam on the lettuce to see whether Liz Truss or the lettuce would last longest. And Liz Truss left office before the lettuce rotted. It's just the thing. It's just, we've had some terrible prime ministers. So that's the point. Well, look, so have we. <laughs> but, uh, listen, another question I always ask, Peter, what do you like to do in your spare time? Well, that's interesting. So... Uh, yeah. Now that's interesting because I've recently reduced my hours and I'm kind of embracing mm. the, the old man. I'm, I'm much older than I look. Um, uh, I suppose I have got a little bit cynical about kind of the constant 
kind of academic grind. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm still doing uh, academic work and I've got various uh, interests. I'm quite an intellectual. So so the sort of library reading stuff, I'd like to read more. I'd like to read more mm. of, of interesting things. I, I'm very much getting into uh, an approach to psychology called perceptual control theory. And uh, I learned most of it from my partner, but I should probably read the stuff for myself in, in like in the first person. So I'm quite an intellectual person. Um, we've started um, keeping bees, which is kind of quite a cool thing. So beekeeping, I would like to do more. My, my plan, incidentally, I, I like bees. Mm. I'm not so keen on honey. So the plan is raise bees, get lots of honey, mm. turn the honey into mead, and then distill the mead into honey brandy. That's that. That's the plan. So, so I've got those sorts of projects. My partner, as I said right at the beginning of your your conversation, my parents weren't deeply into music, mm-hmm. and uh, I sort of I was a bit worried about being psychotic when I was younger. So I wasn't heavily into the music scene when I was in my 20s and I'm starting to with my partner's help get a bit more into music and festivals and that's I'm just embracing being alive I'm just, just enjoying myself that's, that's what I do um I like uh I like the fact that being lazy as well well yeah but that's you know like you say you're trying to move away from the intellectual side of things uh sorry the academic side of things because you've been in it for so long and it's understandable then if you want to be a bit lazy from from time to time. I think that's allowable. So I'm, I'm, I have little projects and I'm, I'm, I'm doing things. So the bees are a little project. It's kind of, kind of moving forward um, and just you know enjoying being alive. Yeah. Um, I I think my I think when I was younger, uh, when I was very young, my project was was really a combination fluctuating between understanding the world to my satisfaction and being successful. Mm. And I think I I don't understand everything in the world, but I've, I've kind of got a reasonable handle on the world and I've, I've achieved a bit of success. The success is mainly illusory. Now I think my my project is going to be enjoying being alive for as long as possible. That's Absolutely. Um, Peter, you've been a, a pleasure to talk to. I really uh, do appreciate you coming on. It's been um, fantastic. So thank you for that. My pleasure. I, I'm feeling uh, under uh, an obligation to, to say to you, we should see if we can drop in the uh, website somewhere in, in your podcast to For sure. on, uh, in Kildare, because I think that's a lovely project. And yeah, maybe that's what I'm going to do now, now is is work hard on stuff like that. Yeah, I um Oh, I'll absolutely. When I put up, this will actually be coming out um tomorrow week i always put up kind of the stuff i'll obviously tag your twitter stuff as well but but i'll put up uh, the website and things so people can uh have a look at it because it does sound absolutely fantastic um peter if you don't mind hanging on for a minute i'll just close this out we'll take a quick photo and then we'll go away and enjoy our tuesdays is that all right perfect thank you peter okay i also need to thank john for doing the uh Technical side of things for me, I'm not the, the greatest, as everybody knows at this point. Um, I always thank my mum, my dad, my granddad, Jern Calvin, for all they did uh, as a family and then as people who put together the music and the and the uh, logo for this. Go to YouTube if you uh, if you wouldn't mind, subscribe. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow Peter on Twitter as well, Peter Kinderman. And and by the way, go and read the book. More importantly, as was one thing that I didn't say, Peter. Um, the book is is available and go and I I got mine on um what's it called like 
on my not my Kindle but my iPad I had to read it on the iPad because I had to get through a quick Peter you know because I knew you were coming on and it's like I need to I need to read this so instead of waiting for the delivery so uh, yeah lending libraries or steal it from dodgy Russian websites that's, that's the way to do it I didn't even think of that it's um, even better um, we're also on uh, you know we're on Spotify Apple Anchor Google Podcast but listen uh, most importantly thanks uh, thanks everyone for listening and for watching and uh, you know uh, once again Peter thanks very much and everybody else we will see you next week bye